Life is made up of many gorgeous moments. Cherish them all, big and small, with Blue Nile. Whether it's for yourself or a loved one, Blue Nile's unrivaled selection of expertly crafted fine jewelry and statement pieces help make all your moments sparkle. Blue Nile's experts are on hand to guide you, and their diamond guarantee ensures you get the highest quality at the best price. Celebrate a life well lived in the most radiant way and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. The number one selling product of its kind with over 20 years of research and innovation. Botox Cosmetic, Anabotulinum Toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis, or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com. Welcome to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Alex Clark and Lucy Dallas, the TLS's arts editor, is here with me. Or should I say back here with me, Lucy? Did you have a nice week off? It wasn't a whole week off. I was actually working quite hard, but I did actually have a day off with the sun. Actually in the allotment, I have to say. So that was very nice. I put compost on things since you asked. <laughs> well, I did ask didn't. and I, I wanted to know. <laughs> Shall we just say you had a week off from me? Put, oh, it, I, put it like I, that. I never want a week off from you, Alex. A nice thing that we got, I think while I was away or maybe before that, I can't remember, was we got a letter, didn't we? We got a lovely letter. And it's very nice because it says it was in response to me saying, hey, get in touch with us. And then one of our lovely listeners did get in touch with us. She said, I've decided to come out of the shadows and offer my greetings, which is brilliant. Makes her sound like a vampire, which I'm sure she isn't. No, she wrote all the way from Singapore, didn't she? Yeah, 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 yeah. So thank you very much, Alicia, for writing to us. Yeah, it's a lovely letter. She's been moving around as an academic, a peripatetic period of her career. She's been in the US, Netherlands, and now Singapore. And she's been listening to us, which we are. And then she says lots of nice things. Which modesty forbids. Yes, we're too modest. We would love to read them out to you. <laughs> Certainly, we have read them out to each other a lot. And <laughs> yes. one of us, at least, has copied them out and stuck them on her office notice board. So thank you very, very much. The bit that isn't about how great we are is actually, one could say, more fascinating. There's a wonderful detail that she includes in response to the piece we had recently about the return of pagan goddesses and priestesses in Western culture. So then she goes into some very interesting details, which I'm going to read out verbatim. She says this. I read with interest the recent TLS essay on the return of pagan goddesses and priestesses in Western culture as a reappreciation of a forgotten or some might say mythical matriarchal past. As an academic who teaches the history of gender in Southeast Asia, this comes across as a universal decline of women's authority in life cycle rituals and the direct outcome of the masculine alliance between state and religion. Perhaps we have room for mystics and priestesses beyond the gender binary. On the island of Sulawesi in Indonesia lives the Bisu, a gender non-binary ritual specialist whose mystical expertise has been on historical records since the early 1600s. They have fought opposition from across the ideological spectrum to maintain their relevance in the 21st century. Isn't that interesting? It's totally, totally fascinating. And it's a wonderful thing because it's developing on and kind of enriching our discussion and the piece and all of that. So, yeah, thank you so much, Alicia. The thought of a ritual, too, that is has maintained and 
continued for 500 years. Yeah. Despite perhaps attempts for it not to. That's just wonderful and very kind of cheering to, to hear about. Do you remember when we were talking about um, I, Joan? Do you remember that, the play? Yes, and I do. Yes. Our guest said that actually there was a, a bit of that going on around Joan of Arc's time as well, that they would have found it less kind of discombobulating than than perhaps we do. They would have made less of a big deal of it, that mm. actually there was a bit more fluidity. So, yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it? And in the rest of the paper this week, we've got, well, we've got Jeffrey Weekoft on American paranoia. It's sort of what happened, I suppose, I mean, it's in a large sense of the American mindset after the First World War. It's a new book by Adam Hochschild. And also a piece about Vera Britton and Winifred Holtby and about their friendship. And it wasn't necessarily as wonderful as you might have thought, put it that way. Oh, that's just the kind of thing that's sort of right up my street. Mm, yeah, yeah. There's lots of good stuff. And also, actually, we were talking about this, weren't we? There's a lot of talk about Roald Dahl, of course. And if you want to read about Roald Dahl and that whole thing, there's a very good piece in NB this week. So you just have to go to the TLS and have a look at it. Well, plenty of food for thought there. Now, I'm packing my bags at the minute. I'm back on my travels, but they've become terribly exciting I'm going they were of course anyway I'm going this weekend to Aberdeen to Granite Noir the crime writing Mm. festival brilliant really looking forward to that but a surprise guest has been (gasps) dropped into the mix yes oh is that where you're going that's where I'm going I'm going to be seeing I hope if I can cram myself into the back of the auditorium I'm going to be seeing in conversation with Val McDermott Nicola Sturgeon that would be good, won't it? Because has it just been announced? Yeah. yeah. Do you think she said, okay, you know, I'm done now. And now she's like, I'm just going to do what I want. And what I want to do is talk to Val McDermott. Well, we can only hope, can't we? I mean, that's what I'd quite, you know, if I was giving up a very heavy duty job and I am renowned for my love of literature and books, I think I'd head straight to a literary festival. Possibly, you know, she probably still has an awful lot to do. So you shouldn't want to go too far away from home. So Aberdeen, perfect. Mm. Yeah, absolutely perfect. Oh, that would be exciting. Yeah, I'll report back next week. Yes, please do. Meanwhile, what's going on this week? Coming up on this week's show, what is your favourite library? And Josephine Tay, a crime writer ahead of her time. First, we can say, I think, in some confidence, we like books. We can take that pretty much for granted here. We may even be unusual in the extent to which we like books, getting them, reading them, thinking and talking about them. But I'm guessing most of us don't build a library of 70,000 of them into the walls and ceiling of our houses. In the news recently have been stories of Bruno Schroeder, an 88-year-old retired mining engineer who did precisely that. Irina Dumitrescu, friend to the TLS and to the podcast, took this as a jumping-off point for a piece in the paper this week in which she muses about books, libraries and bibliomania. Irina, thanks so much for joining us. It's nice to talk to you, Lucy. Tell us about Bruno Schroeder and his house. Well, we don't know very much about him. He seems to have mainly kept to himself. He would go in and buy 20 books a week, but uh, apparently showed no interest in discussing them with the bookseller, which was already seen as a little bit of a suspicious thing to be doing, just not to have the social aspect. And he, he apparently just crafted this magnificent house. You know, I only saw pictures, of course, but there are bookcases everywhere There are bookshelves built into the ceilings on a diagonal where the books are are held by a little bar. It's absolutely gorgeous. And he died. And it seems to be a mystery why he would do this. Although to me, it seems perfectly obvious. Well, when you see the pictures of it, I just looked them up and when I'd read your piece, as you say, it looks lovely. It's very well kept. And you just think, oh, that would be nice. We'd just like to sit in there in the middle of all those books and just kind of see what he's got. It's beautifully organized. And I think, you know, some are crime fiction, but I can also tell from the photos what some of the editions are and they're sort of more literary works. No, who needs art when you can just cover your walls (laughs) with books? You can save a lot of money that way. I was going to say good insulation as well. It looks really cozy. Exactly. It was kind of surprising to people because it was basically only after he died and they went into his house. He didn't kind of invite people in. This wasn't really a known thing. It's surprising to me that it's surprising, but maybe I'm wrong in that because it does seem, I think a lot of people think books are to be shown off or that if you have books, you're trying to communicate something about yourself, that you're a particular kind of person who would own books, who would choose to do that. And I get it. There's a class element to 
having a lot of books in the home. That's not totally surprising. And lots of people, you know, Instagram or tweet about what they read this year and how long the list was and so on. So of course we do show off with books, but it's also lots of people don't, they just have books because they love them. (laughs) They don't need to communicate anything to anyone else but themselves. Mm. 70,000 is, it's a lot though. I mean, we're going to be talking about Umberto Eco later. And he apparently was very proud of his 50,000. So if you've got more than Umberto Eco, you're doing pretty well, I think. I think so. (laughs) Yeah. And it's funny when you you say that, that there's often a kind of smirk, I think you said something like that, that goes with reporting about cases like this with a kind of undertone of what a weirdo. And you said that you sometimes get a reaction a bit like that when people come into your house and see your books. Well, yeah, they say, have you read all of these? This is the classic question. And you can tell or I can tell if someone's going to be a friend when they don't say that, you know, <laughs> or then they right. say something like, I hope you haven't read all of these. Yeah. But I think the core of that is this idea that it would be a waste to have a book on your shelf without reading it cover to cover. And I just don't think that's true. I think a book on the shelf, and I think Umberto Eco felt the same way. It's a treasure that's on your shelf that's waiting. And you might open it or someone else might open it. But the fact of its availability is already wonderful. You don't have to have consumed them all or used them. And actually, it's, yeah, I mean, quite a lot of the time you haven't. Also, if you live with anybody else, then you get all their books, which is interesting and also can sort of be infuriating. But you probably haven't read all of their books as well. No. And then, well, I have to say for me and my relationship with my now husband, this was the major move. It wasn't marriage or, you know, applying to live in the same country together. I guess having a child was a big deal. But the first (laughs) major move was bringing the libraries together and removing doubles. Yes. That's commitment. When you throw away the doubles. It is. And can I say, when you have to agree on how you're going to... um... Organize them. Organize them, yeah. Yes. How you're going to organize them. That's a major decision as well, it seems to me. This is difficult, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and you also say in your piece, we know we mustn't judge a book by its cover, but you do have a bit of an argument for judging one by its spine or at least recognizing books by their spine. Well, I think that's part of the pleasure in owning books and spending one's life with books is having a certain relationship to the physical object too. And I think, you know, a lot of us who who love books also love particular editions, you know, maybe it's the print or the spine. I have a special love. I didn't mention this in the piece, but I really love the old teach yourself language books, which had this kind of blue hardcover that was a little bit cloth like Mm. and would become very soft and you could travel with it and sort of keep it in your pocket. But I think we have some often these associations to the physical object and that has to do a lot with this recognizable cover or design. Mm. As you said, you recognize some of the additions in Bruno Schroeder's house from the spines. You're like, oh, I know what that is. Yeah, I think there were Inzalverlag. And, you know, there are certain additions where you could tell based on where they put the little <laughs> the title and the fact that they tend to go well together. So there's a desire to put them all on the shelf together. Mm. There's another thing about the materiality of them that I always think is important is the smell of them, especially old books. They have a yeah. real particular smell. And especially, you know, the ones that you read when you were younger and then that smell can take you back. My childhood books were in Romania. So for me, that's a very particular smell that's connected to the glue that was used and the paper that was used in Romania in the 1970s and 80s. Mm. And when I smell that, I'm back in my grandfather's study. I'm back, you know, with all of they smell particular. It's just unlike the otherwise much nicer books I've grown up with in North America and Europe. This is a complete tangent, but it just reminds me that a year or so ago, they were selling, I think in a famous bookshop, I think in New York or something, they were selling cologne or perfume called something like old books. I mean, it was a bit better than old books, but it was like you could get it a bit and dab a hand in. And I remember saying it to Thea on the podcast. We were like, oh, let's get some. But it was sold out straight away. It was just, it no, was gone. Of course it was. <laughs> so if you want to, you know, going out on a Saturday night, you want to smell like an old book. But maybe you do. I don't know. <laughs> Attract the right kind of person. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So the kind of enormous amount, you know, let's say that Bruno Schroeder collected, that's something to do with collecting as well, isn't it? The urge to collect, don't you think? I think that's true. And I have slightly spicy thoughts about minimalism. You know, I think we're all supposed to be minimalist and there's at least a contemporary discourse that's supposed to be virtuous, right? You know, throw away everything you don't need. But a lot of people, you know, if you come from a situation where everything wasn't always available at all times, sometimes there's a great comfort to collecting. And then, of course, some of us are just manic in that way. I have I'm a collector. So if I have one thing, I have to have a full collection to it. But okay. yeah, why not? You understand the impulse. Yeah. 
Well, I'll tell you a story. So I knew a man once, a divinity student, an older divinity student at my undergraduate college, which I mentioned in the piece. And he said to me, you know, I only have one shelf of books because anywhere I go, there will be a research library and I can use the research library. And he had a mid-sized bookshelf that had his books on it and everything else he had given away. But I have to say, I've having moved across the ocean to a country in which a different language is spoken. I'm very glad to have a large book collection because there's so many books I can't get even in a large research library here. I could get the German translation of Aristotle, but maybe not the English one or Canadian fiction. You know, I'm not going to find here in Germany as easily and the Romanian stuff, absolutely not. So I actually think I've become very attached to the massive and uncomfortable and annoying collection of books because I know I can't find it everywhere. Mm, mm. And you say that you think there are kind of, you know, as we said, tales and there's sort of certain attitudes towards people who've got lots of books, but there are also you say apocryphal tales attached to libraries as well, public rather than private collections, university ones. You you say there's an urban myth about a university library that you tell. This is a classic North American campus urban myth, which is that when the architects planned the library, they didn't account for the weight of the books. And so the library is now sinking. So this is just one of these tales that's told over and over. I Googled it and I think some libraries are sinking a little bit. So it's not completely wrong, but you know, it's a little bit silly. I think architects can usually figure out the weight of the books and I'm not sure why they would build a library that would sink, but. But Library in a Swamp. I remember hearing about, and I just took it to be true when I heard it. And now I think this is almost certainly the same sort of thing. Hearing about the new libraries in Paris, you know, that then they're all kind of made of glass. And people saying that the architects hadn't realized that when the sun shone through at a certain angle, it actually would start setting the books on fire. (laughs) And they had to sort of install shutters everywhere. And I was like, oh, oh my God, I can't believe it. Yeah. But actually, now I think about it, I don't think it is true because I'm pretty sure the library in question hasn't got shutters there. But it's a good it's a good scene, isn't it? There's a library um, at the Free University in Berlin. It's a beautiful new library where they put all of the literatures, all of the philologies. And it looks like a brain. It's shaped like a brain and it's very modern and the shutters, you know, change automatically. The only problem is that the brain is leaky. So you'll walk into this wonderful modern library and there'll be buckets on the ground to catch the oh, water. Coming oh, you from mean, the, you mean yeah. literally leaky? I mean, literally leaky. Oh, okay. <laughs> That's not so ideal for books. So I think maybe they hadn't thought that one through fully. Yeah. Oh, so, okay. So that one's a true one. Tell us about your connections that you talk about in the piece with the inspirations for the library in the name of the Rose, which is one of the greatest. And I was looking at it again, surely one of the spookiest libraries in Mm -hmm. fiction. Well, so when I was an undergraduate at the University of Toronto, I, I got to know some graduate students in medieval studies and maybe to impress me, you know, they said, well, you know, the library in the name of the Rose is based on Robart's library, which was the major research library at, at Toronto. And it's true that Umberto Eco had been at Toronto in the late 70s, and I think in 1980 or 1981, so right before the publication of The Name of the Rose. And I thought, okay, I don't know. Let's see. And then I went to graduate school at Yale, and in my first week there, while I was doing the tour to get to know the campus, we saw Sterling Memorial Library, which is the research library there, and the tour guide said, well, you know, Umberto Eco based the library in The Name of the Rose on Sterling Memorial Library. And I thought, okay, this is exactly like the, you know, the yeah. sinking library. It's another one of these stories that they tell everywhere because Umberto Eco wrote about a library. And I remember going to my dorm room and it wasn't Googling at the time. It was Alta Vista and I searched Umberto Eco, Robarts, Sterling. And what should I find? But the translation of an essay, De Biblioteca on the library by Umberto Eco in which he has a full section in which he talks about two of his favorite libraries, Robarts Library and Sterling Memorial Library. And to be fair, he doesn't say that he based his library on them, but he was very, very fond of those particular libraries. He visited both Yale and Toronto in the years before publishing The Name of the Rose. And he goes into a great amount of detail, you know, how you enter, how you check out books, how everything is organized. You really spent time using these libraries and becoming attached to them. And I think what he liked about them was that they were both open stacks. So you could go in and just roam around and discover what you would discover. Mm. Yeah, I had a look at them online. I'm not like you. I haven't actually worked in in either of them or seen them in real life, but they're very contrasting, aren't they? Because it's the Yale one, which 
looks very old and labyrinthine and I mean, like you might imagine that the library in the name of the rose might be. I mean, obviously not as old as that. Whereas the Toronto one is very, very modern. It's kind of brutalist, isn't it? It looks like a kind of fortress. It is brutalist. But if you look at the outline of the Toronto library, it's a little bit like um, almost like a Star of David with these little circular things in the corners. And it does actually look a bit like the layout of the library in the name of the rose, which I, I think is more of a square or a diamond, but they do resemble each other. There's a lot of geometry to contend with because he goes, well, there's, I'm going to get this wrong. You know, there's five hexagons and then there's a pentagon at the top of each one. And then the whole thing is a heptagon mm -hmm. because these are all the holy. And I was like, okay, I can't, <laughs> I can't work that out, but I'm, you know, I'm going to take your word for it. That was one of the things, isn't it, about the library in the name of the rose that no one else is allowed in there. It's precisely not accessible. Whereas what he loved about these ones is that you could just wander about in them and photocopy. He seemed to be very taken with the idea that you could photocopy a whole book and claims <laughs> that people used to. Yeah. The big influence, the real library that inspires the library in the name of the rose. And this is not an original observation by any means. It's the Library of Babel, is the Borges, in yeah. which the whole universe is a library with, you know, just multiplying rooms upon rooms of regular bookshelves. So I think, you know, Borges has that image of a library which is very geometric and which is almost splintering like a fractal and which is where you might fall to your death or, you know, people will start wars or get confused over one small textual error. So that's the real predecessor. Mm -hmm. And it reminds me, if Alex were here, she would laugh at me, but I'm not doing this on purpose. It does remind me a little bit of the library in Terry Pratchett's Discworld, which again, is it's built on its own time-space continuum. So you can kind of go anywhere from there, including back in time. And the really dangerous books are locked up. But he says they're all dangerous because anyone might read them and start thinking things. <laughs> that's the promise. I think really that, you know, that's what Echo understood and Borges understood. And this German engineer understood, too, that, you know, you can escape. It's a full escape. So each book is really a world on its own. I mean, it's such a cheesy and obvious thing to say, but I think it's still true. You know, there's a sense in which when you open up the covers of a book, it also multiplies in a fractal kind of way. And if you have the good fortune to still have any attention span these days, you can <laughs> go into another time and place and maybe even be stuck there for a while if the book is good enough. Mm. The essay that you talk about, I couldn't find the original of it, but I found a bit of a translation of it online. And there's a lovely thing he says when he's talking about, I think, both of them. Oh, no, this is Robart's library that he's talking about. I can decide to pass a day of holy joy. I read the mm. papers. I take books to the cafe. I discover things. I go to deal with, let's say, English empiricism. But instead, I start to follow commentators of Aristotle. I get off at the wrong floor. I love that idea of a day of holy joy. And it is serendipity, isn't it? It's bumping into something else that you didn't think you were interested in. It is. And I think actually a personal library, once it grows large enough, can do that too. So I don't know if you've ever had this experience. It's happened to me multiple times by now that I will be in a strange, unsettled kind of mood. I won't really know what I want to read or what I want to do, possibly with my entire life. And, <laughs> and I, I walk to the bookshelf and I'm just sort of scanning it. And the book, which maybe I bought 20 years earlier, jumps at me and I pick it up and it becomes the exact book I wanted to read on that day. Mm. And there's something, there's a synchronicity to that. But of course, I set it up 20 years earlier when I bought that book. And then every time I move that book from apartment to apartment or across borders, you know, I think book collectors understand that too, that randomness can happen on your own shelves in your own home. And you just have to sort of allow the books to exist in your presence long enough until they're ready to speak to you. Yeah. And what's your favorite library? Do you have a favorite library? Oh, gosh. Is that a difficult question? <laughs> no, no, actually, no. It's not a difficult question at all. My favorite library is the Staatsbibliothek in Berlin in mm -hmm. Potsdamer Platz. Actually, it's the opposite of Echo's library. They make it an absolute pain to get inside and you have to request the books. It's not open stacked. And, you know, if you want to get the books out to take them home, you have to request them to a different desk. And it's just, it's, extraordinarily difficult to use. It also for a very long time had bad internet, which was a great uh, mark in its favor. Mm. But, oh, and then there are a lot of books which are missing because they were lost in the war. So it's not a comfortable library in that sense. But what it has are these terrifically high ceilings. And I think differently when I have a lot of space above my head. It feels like the, the thoughts have a place to go and start to dance with each other. 
And also when you don't have all of the books at your disposition, you really have to use the books you have. You have to actually sit there and read them and figure out if you need them so that you can get more. So I wrote my dissertation in that library. It's also the library of Wings of Desire in which, you know, the, oh, the angels yes. are Where they stand out. at the top. Yeah. Yeah. So I liked, every time I walked in there, I like to imagine the angels sitting there watching yeah. over <laughs> all of us working on. Catching your thoughts as they drift right up to the top. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so for me, it's really, it's, uh, you know, not wholly, it's an enchanted place. And I think they've improved the internet, which is terrible. I think the best way to destroy enchantment is to have better internet access. <laughs> <laughs> but there's something about just the vastness of it. And it's really a beautiful kind of modern. There's a lot of natural light and you can think very well in that library. Well, that's a wonderful recommendation. And most of us won't go there since it seems to be fiendishly difficult to get into, but it's lovely to think about. Irina, thank you very much for your guided tour of your libraries. Thank you, Lucy. Still to come on the show, warm and witty, acerbic and opinionated, Josephine Tay, 70 years on. And if you've enjoyed what we've discussed so far this week, let me remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast for free wherever you normally get your podcasts and you'll never miss an episode. Welcome back to the TLS podcast. I'm Alex Clark. Now, Josephine Tay's novels have had an impact on crime fiction that has only grown in the 70 years since her death, an influence made all the more striking in the light of P.D. James's suggestion that such was their unconventionality. They might not even be regarded as detective fiction had they not actually featured a detective. Alan Grant, the policeman in question, spends his most celebrated appearance in The Daughter of Time laid up in hospital trying to solve the mystery of the princes in the tower, a pretty bold setup that was typical of Tay's ingenuity and daring. To discuss the reissue of that novel and two others, we're thrilled to welcome Nicola Upson, whose own series of novels features a reimagined Tay. Nicola, welcome. It's really hard to think of someone better placed to write about these reissues and to talk to us today. Thank you so much. My pleasure. It's always wonderful to talk about her and, and it's great to see her having new lives all the time with these new editions. You must feel that she's somehow your sort of constant companion through the last <laughs> few years of your life. I know you didn't actually come to her as a kind of teenager, as some people do. I, I didn't either. But you came to us sort of a little bit later on in adult life, didn't you? I did. That's absolutely right. And I realise now, in hindsight, having met lots of Tay fans at, at events and things, that I was a real late starter because most people do come to her either on the curriculum through The Daughter of Time or um, sort of in their in their teenage years. And, and although I did, I towered through Agatha Christie moving on after Hardy Boys, Nancy Drew, you know, that, that kind of classic route into crime fiction. Tay was somebody who eluded me until comparatively late when I read the franchise of her. Well, that was exactly my experience. Agatha Christie, Dorothy L. Sayers, and somehow not her, but you did say the franchise affair was the first of the novels that you read. And that's also, as with The Daughter of Time, it's based on a historical incident, isn't it, which is then updated to the 20th century. It is. It was based on the Canning case, which was a couple of hundred years old by the time that Tay got to it. But she realised that it could be perfectly refashioned and reimagined for the times that she was living in of uh, the book. The Franchise Affair was published in 1948. So those post-war years that were 
you know, very febrile society just settling down again, just trying to find its feet after the fear and the uncertainty of the war, a time when everybody was suspicious of the stranger, when people mm. were judged by how they looked and how they behaved and not necessarily correctly. And so Tay played all of that. Identity was a very strong theme in, in all of her books, but she played on that and in typical ingenious fashion created something from it that was entirely new, a setting that is at once familiar to us from the conventions of crime fiction in that it's about a sort of small town solicitor. It's about two women, a mother and daughter, who are accused of kidnapping and abusing a young girl called Betty Kane. And that, for golden age fiction, was quite strong stuff. So she takes all this stuff and she makes it into something which is entirely her own and a gripping story that... Interestingly, I think different generations, I mean, you can see by the fact that it's still so popular today, find something new in it. And certainly when I read The Franchise Affair again, it's probably still my favourite of her books. I find something different in it each time, something I haven't found before. It's a chameleon of a book. And chameleon was often a word she used about herself in her letters, which is interesting. It does seem to me as though when you're reading her, so I would just say you two said you came to her late, but I came to her very late, like about two days ago. Because <laughs> I, read your, I read your piece, Nicola, and I was like, okay, I will read some of this. So I'm reading A Daughter of Time, which is the one that everybody knows, The Daughter of Time. And I'm totally gripped by it. I just think it's brilliant. It seems to me I much prefer it to Agatha Christie and all that. Anyway, don't tell me what happens because I don't want to know what happens. (laughs) It seems that you're getting at least two novelists, aren't you? You're sort of getting historical fiction and you're also getting a detective story. I mean, at least two. There's probably more than that. Absolutely. And I think it's interesting that you mentioned in your introduction that P.D. James said if she hadn't created Grant, who was her serious detective, she might not be regarded as a detective novelist. And I think that's true. And lots of the reasons she is, in some extent, as popular she is as among readers, she's the crime writer's crime writer as well. She's been hugely influential. And it's something that Ruth Rendell also picked up in when she was writing an introduction to Brat Farrer. Take and write the detective novels. We see it in The Man in the Queue, A Shilling for Candles, To Love and Be Wise, which is one of these reissues. I mean, all those are novels of detection in that they have this professional policeman who I would argue was one of the first really kind of credible policemen to feature in detective fiction. But she's also got these other novels too, like Brat Farrer and The Franchise Affair and Miss Pym Disposes, books that Grant doesn't appear in as a main character, although he crops up in a cameo role in The Franchise Affair, which are much more psychological. They look at the darkness inside ourselves. They make us face the darkness inside ourselves. And they're precursors, in a way, to books that we love, like P.D. James's Innocent Blood or, you know, psychological crime novels. And Patricia Highsmith's work as well. Brat Farrer is about an imposter, isn't it? It's about that somebody who is just turns themselves into somebody else. And it has that kind of Highsmith idea of the sort of double that always walks alongside you. And that in some respect kind of mirrors a sort of split self. I may be getting a little bit fanciful here. I don't know. But it's that sort of thing rather than a crime. Someone comes along and solves it. Absolutely. But once again, she does something really different and unusual with the imposter novel, because lots of imposter novels are about us as readers guessing whether this person is or isn't who they say they are. Right up front, she tells us at the beginning, Brat Farah is an imposter. We know he's a wrong and in the sense of what he's trying to do, which is infiltrate this family that he doesn't think he has any connection with. And yet we love him. It's her genius that she makes us love him and she makes us on his side. And I think that's an interesting thing about her books as well, is how she can corral you into embracing these characters and standing with the underdog, maybe having those sympathies with characters that in the hands of more conventional novelists, we wouldn't side with. A really interesting point that you make in your piece, which is just sort of fascinating with all the biographical details about her. You make the point about her writing that she puts so much focus on the victim. You know, you're talking yeah. there about how we we do identify and side with to an extent someone like Brat Farah. But she recognizes the victim and not just the immediate victim, but the ripples that a violent crime creates in a society and mm. an environment. And I'm interested in the way that you think 
she was sort of departing from classic golden age fiction by doing that and what she was trying to do. I think she, right from her very first book, which wasn't a detective novel, it was called Kiff, and it came out in 1929, and it was the story of a boy who goes to war and comes back and finds a society that has no place for him. And it's a book that, in its very raw, she was a young writer then, and it's very raw, and it screams with injustice. But Kiff is her first victim, if you like, and, and you really, as a reader, care for him. And I think that's interesting in the way that it looks forward into her crime fiction. If you take a book like The Franchise Affair, which I think is classic in its treatment of this subject, she was one of the earliest people to recognise how many people crime affected. Christie did it too. I mean, you, in some of Christie's best novels, you get that dissatisfaction with the legal system, the conventional paths of justice. But Tay takes you in a way beyond the place that lots of novels normally finish, where justice has supposedly been done. A, with that uncomfortable idea that perhaps justice hasn't been done. B, with the idea that even if it has, there are people who will be forever changed by the world of the book that she's created. Not to give too much away as to whether Betty Kane, who is the kidnapped girl in the franchise affair, we pretty much know whose side we're on through most of the path through that book. But there are other people. She has an adopted mother who can never, in one memorable line, Marion Sharp, one of the heroines of the book, talks about how that woman will never be able to step onto green grass again without wondering if it's a bog. And it's that kind of idea that once you've been affected by crime, if you're the victim, if you are the family of the victim, obviously that loss will be forever with you. But also if you've been fooled, if somebody who has presented themselves as one thing, again, that idea of identity, and turned out to be something else, that's a scar that you never entirely wipe out. And I, I think she's, certainly I think for me and the sort of books that I like to write, that uncomfortable sense of, because death is entertainment, crime novels, it's a funny old genre really, <laughs> but she, said it had to be unsettling. You have to recognise that darkness. And it comes with her with the sort of thinnest of veneers because the voice of the books, the warmth, is part of what we love about them. But she can write books that are taken on so many different levels. And if you delve below the surface that she presents to us, you get that very uncomfortable darkness that stays with you long after you finish reading the book. Mm. That idea about identity and all sorts of identities. I mean, she, as Alex mentioned, she herself had at least sort of two identities, more than two probably, didn't she? She did. Well, she she fashioned literary pseudonyms for herself. Her real name was Elizabeth McIntosh. We know her best as Josephine Tay, which was a name that was introduced with her second crime novel, A Shilling for Candles. But she also had another name, Gordon Daviot, that her first crime novel, The Man in the Queue, was published under, but also then became more famous for historical fiction and for the plays that she wrote that were very successful, particularly a play called Richard of Bordeaux, which ran for over a year in the West End and really launched Gilgood on his celebrity career. And so she had those different writing identities. And to some extent, certainly in all the letters I've read over the years and collected, she had different voices depending on whom she was writing to. I mean, she was her theatre friends. It was very much a David letter and she had that voice. Interestingly, the Tay voice was used for people she knew really, really well. Maybe people that she'd known her whole life. And you, you sense that against that warmth and that, that humour coming out of the page. So, yeah, she did fashion her own identities for literary purposes, but also she was a different person. I think all of us, to some extent, are different depending on where with friends or families or work colleagues. But certainly she was a different, more private person in Inverness. And when she came down to London and got her furs out of storage and booked into her private club, she was much more gregarious. And it's not to say that those one camp of friends knew her any better than the other, but they certainly knew her differently. I love that detail that you mentioned there and in the piece of her getting her furs out of storage in Debenhams. Yeah, Gilgood told me that. I was lucky oh. enough, <laughs> I was lucky enough to speak to Sir John Gilgood, who knew her very well before he died. And and that was one of the things he told me because she came down 
to London quite often and she stayed at the Cowdery Club, which is a club for nurses and professional women. It's in the news again at the moment because it's now the headquarters of the Royal College of Nursing. And so she booked into that club and she had her furs in storage at Debenhams just around the corner and her bank, the Westminster Bank on the corner. So so she had the life set up ready for her to step back into when she came down south again. And her life in Inverness, again, was constrained. Not, I mean, it was a long way away from that you know, theatre society of London and that life that she lived. But it had different kind of constraints, too, because she was a carer for her mother and her father. And her writing was, I mean, she was a compartmentalised person, wasn't she? She was a sort of socialite type of person, a writing person, a caring person. But she kept them all separately in a way. She did keep them all separately. I mean, personally, I I think there are a lot of myths that have sprung up about Tay, and often because she started them herself. And this idea of her caring for an invalid father, certainly she came home, she cut short her career, which was as a physical training instructor after her mother's death. And she came home to live at Crown Cottage in Inverness with her father. Now, her father was catching prize-winning salmon into his 80s. So I don't know how much of an invalid. Not completely bedbound then. No, no. <laughs> but they did live very companionably together, and it suited her because it allowed her. She was somebody who, from what I can see, when you start to get obsessed with this and you're looking at the dates on letters and, and piecing together where she was at different times, she was somebody who didn't like to be in one place for too long, and it, it was perfect for her because if she was with her London friends and they were beginning to weary her, she had to get back to Inverness. But she wasn't quite as tied to Inverness as she sometimes gave the impression of being. That is such a cautionary tale, isn't it, about how we can concoct identities for people based on about one snippet of information. <laughs> I honestly pictured her taking beef tea to her father and then sort of wheeling out his bath chair kind of thing, stealing a few minutes to go and write a chapter. No, no. I mean, he was a, a self-made man. He was a fruiterer and he worked his way up from a fruiterer's apprentice to own a number of properties in Inverness. So he ran his own shop and he rented out other properties as well. So he did that quite long into his life. As I said, he loved his fishing. He had his own circle of friends. And so she wasn't tied in the beef tea sense. In fact, there's a, there's a brilliant letter where she's had to cut short a holiday somewhere, I think, because her father has been ill. There's this long diatribe and she finishes it by saying, ah, but I suppose in the end it is better still to have a parent or something, something like that, words <laughs> to that effect. And there was a certain constraint on her because there's a letter that she wrote just after her father's death to her lifelong friend, Marjorie Davidson, who they'd grown up together in Inverness. They'd gone to Anstey Physical Training College together. And she always wrote very openly to Marjorie. And it was just after her father's death. And of course, it becomes even more poignant when you know that she died so shortly after he did, that she says it's very strange how she feels because at last she's free. So there is that kind of sense that although it wasn't in the invalid sense that some of us might read into those those phrases, there was a certain kind of parental obligation that she had to fulfill and that freedom, sadly, she never really lived to let that grow and develop. I mean, she died in her 50s, didn't she? And yeah. for someone with such influence and such a devoted readership, her output is relatively small, I suppose. I mean, I guess we are also doing things like comparing it to someone like Agatha Christie, who was just mm. prodigious and lived a very long life. But she also, of course, wrote many, many plays. But her output as a mystery writer, a crime writer, was relatively small, wasn't it? Really small, yeah. Just those eight crime novels, really. Um, she wrote a few other historical fictions as well. But yes, so we are judging her on, as you say, a, a very, very small body of work. But what's even more, I don't know if you want to call it tantalising or frustrating, but every single book of hers was different. She never did the same thing twice. And she was a very unpredictable writer. So there's this thing that's always in the back of our mind of what she might have gone to write next. And I personally, I know lots of people who love her and read her feel exactly the same, feel really cheated by that because the variety of her work and the scope that it covered and the daringness of it, she was never afraid to try a new idea. So I actually think it makes us feel 
as though we've got a, a much larger body of work to play with than those eight novels, simply because of the ground she covered in them. Mm. It's so interesting what you were saying about, because from my position as a neophyte and still reading my first one, but even within that, I've come across quite an interesting psychological description of the nurses. You said that she was staying in the place where the nurses lived. She's interested in the nurses. There's a wonderful theatrical character. There's a lot of theatre going on. Yep. Lots of glamour and some sort of slightly cutting remarks about actresses and playwrights <laughs> and things like that. And Scotland is there as well. All of this stuff already, as I say, and I've only read some of one of her best-known works, is all there already. Yeah, absolutely. And I think... If you go on, and it sounds like you are going to go on to yes, read the rest of those books as well, <laughs> you'll find those themes expanded on and, and developed in the books. As you say, there's a huge amount of theatre that runs through her books from The Man in the Queue, where, where a man's stabbed in the theatre queue, to To Love and Be Wise, where the actress Marta Hallard character, who was based on several of the actresses that Tay knew very, very well throughout her life, she appears in a, in a bigger role in To Love and Be Wise, so you get to know her much better. That love of Scotland, that deep attachment to the Scottish landscape, you will find in some of her books beautifully in The Singing Sands, her last novel. All those things are so richly developed, as well as the individual characters that carry the books themselves, like Grant and like the Sharps in The Franchise Affair. If she was publishing I don't know in the 80s or something or the 90s there's the thing about um Grant mentions that he's seen the play that she wrote Richard of Bordeaux four times if she'd you know read that in the past sort of 20 30 years you'd be like oh what a postmodernist touch <laughs> <laughs> how clever and it turns out she did it a long time before any of them yeah that's true that is very funny you mentioned to Love and Be Wise there, which is a third of the books that have been reissued that you've written about. And you say in your piece, it's her most unsettling book, but also the one she liked least. I was really intrigued by that. What yeah. did she like about it? She doesn't say annoyingly. She says that it's, she's talking to, again, she's writing to a friend. She says that uh, To Love and Be Wise was her publisher's favourite of the books that she'd published recently, and it's her least favourite. I mean, Gielgud told me that he thought it was because she'd put too much of herself into it. There are several elements of that book that the village is based on Finching Field and Stambourne, which are villages in Essex where Gielgud and Dodie Smith and Gwen Frank and Davis and Marta Van all had uh, country cottages, interestingly, largely of the, the proceeds of her play, Richard of Bordeaux. So they must have been forever grateful to her for that. So there's that sort of element. It's interesting that I can't go too closely into this without giving the book away. And it is a really wonderful twist, that book. But the motive for the crime in that book is very much obsession. And when you are absolutely fixated on somebody and it's about jealousy, it's about hatred, and it's about how those passions can get the better of you and turn you into somebody you don't recognise. And that's something she understood. Again, it's tantalising in her letters. She's writing to Marda Van. She's talking about how, you know, she's done a, a lot of good, solid hating in her time. And interestingly, <laughs> all the people she hated went to the bad without her having to do anything about it. <laughs> so you get that kind of emotion from her books. And Marda Van was deeply in love with her and wrote her a year-long love letter in the form of a diary. And you see lots of those emotions and either what it's like to be the object of an emotion like that or what it's like to feel those emotions yourself and they ripple through to love and be wise in a really intriguing half-developed way. When you started to want to write about her you started off thinking you might write a biography I think didn't you but yes that wasn't something that was going to essentially sort of have legs I guess because there wasn't it just kind of wasn't enough that was discoverable perhaps but you've decided that you take her into fiction which is such a kind of reviewer sort of move to make you must have felt quite anxious about it at the beginning quite trepidatious really anxious and it happened with one of those well just things you can never plan for it, it was when I was hitting my head against a brick wall in the biography and it's actually my partner Mandy who turned to me one night and said oh for god's sake just make it up <laughs> and 
that was how the idea started. And then suddenly... Did she actually mean make it up? Because I can't stand listening to you trying to write this biography anymore. That's there was very like. much a sense of that running through it. Yeah. But she also meant, don't be afraid of it. Don't be afraid of what you don't know. And she was absolutely right, because the gaps started to become as intriguing as the facts. And so to tell the idea of this story, to reflect her life truthfully from the research I've done, but also to be able to celebrate her work in a playful way, which kind of paid tribute to all her work, from Richard of Bordeaux, which was the subject of the first novel, An Expert in Murder, to the books that have come later where I can work through her, working through whatever she's doing at the time. It is a fantastically freeing idea, but you're absolutely right. It did terrify me because... A, these books have had a sort of long gestation period. So it was a period before putting real, I and mean, certainly before the crown, before the idea that you could put anybody into fiction and tell their life story that way. But also I didn't want to destroy this huge love of her that people have. I mean, not that I could destroy it, but I didn't want to antagonise people by them feeling I was being in any way disrespectful because the people who love Tay really love her. And it's a very, very special relationship. So I I wanted it to come across to people that that's how it started for me, too, that that's why these novels exist, is because I love her work, not because I had this gimmick of wanting to put a real person in a crime novel. So they did start with her, and they do still carry on in that vein. Most of the books start with something real about her life or her work. Well, look, because we've basically run out of time, although I, I sense talk about Josephine Tay and your books for a long time. Because we're nearly out of time, I can say without looking too obsequious, I really, really like your books. I really enjoyed them so much. Thank and you. I like the way that they're, I mean, they're not continuation novels, although goodness knows there's a very much a place for those in the canon, but they're not that. And you said once that what you didn't want to do was make her a kind of Miss Marple figure. And you really don't. And they're complementary to me, to Josephine Tay's work. That's fantastic to hear. I mean, not Miss Marple in a derogatory way, because I love Miss Marple, but mm. she simply wasn't that sort of person. So that would have been wrong. But it's fantastic to know that you love them that much. There you go, Lucy. Look at your reading list. It gets longer and longer. I haven't finished this one. And I just i am very <laughs> glad that you haven't told me what happens, despite the fact that it all happened hundreds and hundreds <laughs> of years ago. I'm completely agog. <laughs> no, it is brilliant. And I think it's testament to her, really, that you couldn't, take one of her novels and continue it I don't think I think if she left something unfinished rather than neatly tied up and waiting to be published then I don't think anybody could have taken that book and continued it seamlessly as they have with some other writers work because her voice was unique thank you so much for talking to us about her that was just such a pleasure Nicola thank you my pleasure too thank you That's all we have time for this week. Our thanks go to Irina Dimitrescu and Nicola Upson. And thank you for listening to this episode of the TLS podcast, produced by Charlotte Pardy. We'll be back next week, but for now, from Lucy Dallas and from me, goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>